Thanks for listening to Looking Forward Our Way. We'd like to ask a favor from you. Would you give us some feedback on our podcast? We've made it really easy to do so. Click on the link in your episode show notes. That link will take you to our podcast Google My Business page. You may have to sign in to your Google account. From there, we'd appreciate your feedback on the podcast overall, feedback on a specific episode, or a suggestion on what you'd like to see us cover in a future episode. All your feedback is so much appreciated. Your comments only help us create episodes that will keep all of us looking forward our way. I think adults of all ages, middle-aged, older adults, should not underestimate themselves in their abilities to go back to school and be successful. Uh, I think it's helpful to find a mentor, Mm -hmm. somebody that's in the, if you're thinking that you might be interested in some health profession, Find a mentor that can help you um, understand what's involved. Do an informational interview for for new occupations so you know what's really involved and maybe do some job shadowing. Um, I have been a lifelong learner myself, as you can tell from my various (laughs) degrees. There was somewhat of a gap between the degrees, but I also um, did a lot of what I think of as continuing education in terms of professional credentials, right. um, certifications, industry-recognized certifications that can be valuable in keeping, um, keeping a job and recognizing that, that skills and job requirements change over time. We are looking forward our way from Studio C in the 511 Studios, located in the Brewery District in downtown Columbus. This is Brett, and with me, as always, is Carol. You know, today's topic is very close to my heart. Um, We have always talked about lifelong learning and the power of learning and individual success in the workplace. So um, I'm pretty excited with where we're going today. Yeah, and now it's my turn to bring in an, uh, my alma mater because you got yours earlier with yes. our Pandemic in the Arts series. Mm-hmm. So today's guest is from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I'm a graduate 88. Uh, welcome, Dr. Phyllis Cummins, Senior Research Scholar from Miami's Scripps Gerontology Center. Dr. Cummins, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I'm glad we got to make this happen in studio. I agree. I think it's a much better setting, and it's nice to be face-to-face people <laughs> exactly. after, after the year we've been through. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. We haven't seen Phyllis for a while. She has been a supporter with Brett and I of, of our previous agency, and so we're glad to see you again today. Right. So um, as I mentioned, though, um, the discussion revolves around job seekers and their success in the workplace. How do you find a new opportunity, move up the ladder, change your career field, um, what kinds of things do you have to do as a as a job seeker? But employers are also telling us that they can't find qualified workers. So today, Phyllis is going to help us dive into the issues and the barriers that she has researched and any um, successful trends she's seen. All right. Well, let's give our listeners an overview of your background first, though, so it kind of sets the stage. You started in business and then an MBA from University of Northern Florida moved into human resources at Florida Gulf Coast, then into gerontology with your doctoral program at Miami, uh, including a postdoctoral program with Scripps uh, Center. Tell us more about that journey. You moved from real estate investing 
to research in gerontology. That's that's a huge leap. <laughs> it, it is a big leap. Um, I like to tell people it took me 40 years to get my PhD because I got my under my bachelor's at Ohio State in 1973, and then I completed my PhD in social gerontology at Miami University mm-hmm. in 2013. So 40-year uh, 40, 40 gap. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of research in that. <laughs> Yeah. So my my major at Ohio State was in real estate and marketing and what was then the College of Administrative Science, and now it's the um, Fisher College of Business. Um, and I worked for Prudential Financial for many years in the real estate investment department. Um, the first job I had with Prudential was in Jacksonville, Florida. And while I was working there, I went to University of North Florida at night and got my MBA um, I moved around a bit with Prudential. I worked in their Jacksonville, Florida office, then Cleveland, then Cincinnati. And, but I spent most of my career at um, in their corporate office at Newark in Newark, New Jersey. I took early retirement at age forty-eight. Um, we, my husband and I, moved to Florida. We built a home on an unbridged island, <laughs> mm-hmm. and nice. we, we were there during the two thousand four and two thousand five hurricane season. Oh, there you go. And there was. <laughs> our, our house on this unbridged island um, was, was built new, but it was damaged such that um, it needed quite a bit of repairs, and we didn't live in it again after that. I got bored, so I decided to go to Florida Gulf Coast University, and I uh, completed a second bachelor's in human performance, which is like exercise science, and they have a master's program in gerontology. Um, and while I was getting the bachelor's in human performance, we had a couple of clinicals, and I found that I enjoyed working with older adults with their exercise programs, so that attracted me to gerontology. And I did my master's in gerontology, and uh, by the time we finished that, we got tired of preparing for hurricanes. And I'm, <laughs> I'm from Ohio, and I convinced my husband to move back here, which didn't take much convincing after I took him to one Ohio State football game. There you go. So anyway, so we moved um, back to Ohio full time. I guess it would have been in 2008. And I was investigating doctoral programs. Um, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would complete enter a PhD program, much less finish. It always sounded quite intimidating. Um, but I applied at Miami University um, to their doctoral program and was accepted and I completed my Ph.D. in 2013. My, my dissertation research was about older workers and job training programs for mm-hmm. older workers because I, at the time I um, started the program, it was the Great Recession was just winding down, and I had a great awareness of some of the struggles that older workers were facing. So I used data from the Workforce Investment Act, WIA data, which has since been replaced by uh, the Workforce Investment Opportunity Act, WIOA, to look at outcomes for um, older adults who participated in WIA programs. And then I also looked at community college programs that focused on, on older workers. I met Carol when I was doing some work for the Ohio Department of Aging on their um, senior Community Service Employment Program, CSEP, um, and Mark Malay introduced us, I believe. Yes, And that work led to some um, applications for some grants from the Institution of Education Sciences, which is um, the U.S. Department of Education. And I've been successful in being a part of four 
um, rather large grants with with IES, and they um, the first one focused on adults ages forty and older enrolled in Ohio's community colleges. And they're my projects are all mixed methods. Um, we use data from the Ohio Longitudinal Data Archive to look at ed- both educational and employment outcomes for older adults. And then from a qualitative perspective, we had three case study community colleges where we um, had focus groups of older students to really understand what barriers they face, what their goals are, right. why, why they go back to school, how are they different from um, younger students. And we talked to administrative um, staff and um, chief academic officers. So right. that was the first grant. And we used, uh, with another collaborator, we used data from the Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies, which is PIAC. It's an international um, survey of adult skills. Um, data were collected in the U.S. in 2011 and 12, and then again in 2014. And the skills assessment measure literacy, numeracy, and problem-solving skills in a technology-rich environment. Um, And that one also was mixed methods. And we we did interviews with people in multiple countries, including several European countries, to really understand what are their policies and programs to support adult learning. Mm -hmm. How can that inform what we do in the U.S.? And then a current project I'm involved in um, similar to the community college project in Ohio, but is to look at Ohio technical centers. And there are roughly 50 of those in Ohio, and they award certificates and diplomas. They're um, not associate's degrees. They're lower than that. But they, uh, most of the students that are enrolled there are adult students ages 25 and older. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting key that you – an age that you said in there about 40 and above. Mm-hmm. I right. think people are under the misconception that this is just 65, 70-year-old people we're talking about. It's like, no, we're, it's all the way down to right. 40s yeah, to well, really focus on, to start, start the focus. There. Yeah, part of the reason we selected age 40 um, was that's the age for age discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, and just from, a, from the concept of what could, what could we get approved for funding – we really needed to include an age group that would be attractive to funders. Sure. Um, and it's really about age 40 is when people start thinking about, well, do, are they going to have to change careers and, and make right. those decisions? Right. right. Yeah. But I think, too, that um, employers recognize that there are changes in um, individuals' perception of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and their decisions on where they want to go, what their maybe change in their career path. I mean, I think 40 is a pivotal year, and people don't realize that. And I have to say, when Phyllis and I first met, when the Department of Aging was doing a lot of work, they were really recognizing, even at that point in time, because aging was normally working with folks 65 and over, and it was very much um, Medicare and healthcare issues, but they recognized that Older workers were pivotal to our economy that we could – Ohio was not going to reach the, the, the levels it was looking for in economic development without including 
older workers, and I'm putting my mm-hmm. little quotes up here in the air. And so they started looking at 50 and over. But as you said, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, the Discrimination Act on, on looking at workers age 40 and over has been around for a while. We're changing the mindset of older workers, that it's not just the retiree who mm-hmm. wants to you know, be the Walmart greeter. That's not really what we're looking at. That's right. So. I, in one of the um, manuscripts we've been working on, one of my collaborators wrote the phrase, older workers need work and employers need older workers. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's so true in Ohio, but um, they may or may not have the skills that, that uh, employers are looking for. Right. You know, um, as I mentioned, Phyllis and I ha- have gotten to know each other over many, many years of, of my working with older adults looking for work. And I can't tell you and I can't thank the Scripps Center enough <laughs> for all of the times I have uh, gone, dived into their website, found what I needed and used it in the next grant report that I wrote. And and, and I did give them credit, but they, they did the work for me. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a jewel under the bushel sort of thing. People don't know about Scripps. So tell us a little bit more about sort of the overall sure. picture. Sure. And I suspect you were using the population website. Oh, and, yeah. And if you haven't looked lately, it looks very different. It's oh, been cool. totally updated. And there, there are a lot more um, different sorts of data available Wonderful. now Wonderful. On, on, the, on the website. But um, – Scripps is really one of the top centers for research and aging and education. Um, we have the Department of Sociology and Gerontology has um, degree programs at the bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. level. And they're really only one of a handful of universities in the country that have offer all three um, degrees. Uh, Ohio – well, Scripps is especially well-known for its Ohio Long-Term Care Research Project, which um, was established in response to the growing older population. Um, and as I mentioned, the, the population website has recently been updated. I also wanted to mention of some recent work Scripps has been doing with ARP. Um, they've been collaborating to develop um, an ARP nursing home COVID-19 da- dashboard to provide um, four-week snapshots of the virus info into nursing homes, um, and it's received a lot of press. Um, and now they're working on a project um, with ARP to to examine how COVID has impacted nursing homes, serving a high proportion of minority residents. It's not just Scripps research staff, but there's research fellows from various departments and colleges across the university that have an interest in aging issues. Um, so we all work towards making a positive difference in the lives of aging individuals and their families. I, I think for our listeners, why, why I think this is critical to hear more about what Scripps does is, number one, we need more young people to study the area because, needless to say, our population is aging, particularly here in Ohio, um, and to, under, to better understand um, what's going on with older adults because – as our friend Fran Ryan, who's going to be on another podcast with us, always says, what's good for older adults is also good for younger adults. Um, the services that an older adult needs, chances are pretty good that they, that the, a younger adult is going to need it. So for our listeners, um, not only do you want to – I want you to see Scripps as a great place to go if you have a question. Um, there's lots of information there, but to also see this as a, a stepping stone if you know some young pup folk who would like to do more and study more in gerontology. Yeah, and I think that 
it's being increasingly recognized that, um, say, someone is a business major and they're going to do financial planning, chances are they're going to interact with individuals of all ages. So just understanding um, cognitive differences of of us as we age and understanding issues that older adults might be facing from an employment perspective. Right. So I I think that across the university, there's an increasing understanding of um, the importance of knowledge about aging. Right. And I think all those IT um, students – who are writing apps need to know more about aging, so they write yeah. apps that we can see. Right. Well, <laughs> well you know, well the medical field is divided right. up. I mean, you can specialize in this. Why not other fields as well, mm-hmm. being financial or tech? <laughs> that it becomes, yeah. Think about this. It's right. it's a it's a actually a market we're, to we're the dive into consumers. Right. Are, and exactly. I think um, I think the pandemic showed that we not only are big consumers, we have we are perfectly capable of going on Amazon and ordering stuff. So well, lots of stuff. <laughs> lots of <laughs> lots stuff. Of stuff. I know. Exactly. I was breaking down boxes this week yeah. <laughs> to get rid, to get them to the recycling. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, let's set the stage for our listeners. We had a very turbulent year with the pandemic. However, the economy was moving quickly and successfully before uh, March of 2020. And right now, the expectations are that it will uh, is going to pick back up again. Thank goodness. Uh, now that the vaccines are available, we you know have some positive momentum. Yet, it's always been more difficult for older workers to enter the job market historically than compared to younger workers. Let's explore what was going on in early 2020 and why employers were stating they couldn't find qualified workers when so many older adults wanted to stay in the workplace. Well, I think there's several reasons. Ageism is always an issue. Mm -hmm. Just the perception that um, older adults can't learn new things, um, that they um, will just start working and retire in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lack of, or unwillingness of some employers to um, make investments in job training for older workers. But another reason is that older adults may not have the skills that employers are looking for. Um, I mentioned before problem-solving skills in technology-rich environments – that includes critical thinking skills, problem-solving skills, you know, figuring out how to, to go from A to Z on a project, um, teamwork. Um, all those sorts of skills are increasingly important for employers, and it's what they look for. And it may not be what, um, what older adults, middle-aged adults are accustomed to or what they learned when they were in college. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the reason I think one issue with middle-aged and older workers and perhaps why they don't have the skills some employers are looking for is because um, they may have gotten out of high school or college 20 or 30 years ago, and perhaps they haven't kept their skills up, perhaps technology skills. Um, There's a concept of digital natives and digital immigrants. I'm a digital immigrant. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are very few jobs today that don't involve technology in some way, using a computer for um, to clock in your time or, you know, whatever. And I think that in in the U.S., there really hasn't been this concept 
about the importance of lifelong learning and a learning society where we continue to learn and are provided with opportunities to learn and build new skills. Yeah. So but, I think that's part of the, the reason. Right. Well, there was that natural transition that employers stopped training their own. Right. And it became a That's burden right. on – well, I, I don't, shouldn't call it a burden, but it was a responsibility of the employee to continue that training on their own time. And with their own money. And their own money. But they weren't changing their job. So I don't think right. people recognized the need to continue. Correct. And when we say training, we're really talking something much bigger than just how to make a widget or how to move a piece of paper from one desk to another. It, it was really like looking at – looking forward. Getting information yeah. at the, at that's coming along that you may not need today, but you're going to need tomorrow. That's right. And think of what a manufacturing plant looks like today right. versus what it looked like 20 or 30 years ago and all the automation and robotics that are involved now. And the clean environment that And the it is. clean environment. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to digress here just for a second because one of the things that I would see in my clients when they were having trouble in their job searching – um, because they were so attuned to the job they did and the tasks they did, they didn't even really understand that they had learned a lot and that they had gone through training and that they're, they were capable of doing critical thinking. They just didn't put it in that context. So it, it may not be that they don't have the skills, but they don't recognize how to show the value that they bring to a workplace. I think that's right. And I think there's also the concept of self-imposed ageism, right. that they lack confidence, that um, mm -hmm. they assume that they're going to be treated with an ageist attitude right. when they may not be. And I think that is an issue for just assuming that, well, this potential employer is oh, going to have an ageist attitude rather than go in and really sell themselves and what they can offer. I, I had a client, um, I was doing a workshop and this was in the middle of the recession. And this gentleman who was, you know, dressed to the nines got up and said, I applied for the perfect job for me. I was the absolute best candidate and I didn't get it. They just decided I was too old. And so we talked about it in front of a, I don't know, a group of 100 people out there. And I finally said to him, so do you know who got the job? And he said, no. And I said, so you have no idea how old that person is. They could be one day older than you. You don't know. And, and so it's not your assumption, it's what how you project your yeah. own abilities and value. And I heard of a similar circumstance where an individual um, was convinced that he was being um, – he was a victim of ageism um, and the person that was working with him asked to see his resume. The resume was full of typographical errors. Oh, there you go. So – you know, there's things like that. that sure. And then the individual assumed, well, it was ageism when, in fact, it was his own um, his own typographical or grammatical errors in his resume. Right. So, Phyllis, you know, education, um, it can be a major barrier and not just college. Um, so many people don't uh, – they haven't finished high school or they've only done GED programs. We've got trade schools. We've got technical programs and careers that require certificate and or license. Um, Ohio seems to have a school on every corner. You know, bless Governor Rhodes. He has community colleges all over the place. Um, but employers keep saying they can't find qualified candidates. Why are adults not pursuing education in Ohio? I think one of the reasons is they don't understand the benefit. They don't right. realize that it's something that they need to do. Um, it, but it might take an employment shock, a job loss for them to, to seek training. 
I think another factor um, is that some adults, um, particularly those with just a high school grad uh, degree, they may have had bad experiences mm-hmm. in education at younger ages, whether it be bullying or maybe they had one really bad teacher and it turned them off from pursuing education. Um, and they just are afraid they might have um, perceptions that they're too old to learn. They might think they can't afford going back to school. They might have a fear of test-taking. Um, and they might have a lack of knowledge about programs that are available in their community and how they might benefit and how they might be able to upgrade their skills. Right. And some t- some of the people we had in our focus groups, um, it was – for the community college project. It was not long after the Great Recession, and I recall one individual talking about they were there to upgrade their skills, to reduce their risk of future job loss. They wanted to have that extra degree Mm -hmm. so that they would be in a better position to be less likely to lose their job, and if they did lose their job, to have a qualification that would make them more employable, more attractive to other employers. Um, so I think a lot of it is just a lack of knowledge about what the opportunities are, and there are some quite affordable opportunities in Ohio, right. and there are many um, options for financial aid. You know, when you think about it, and going back to, to what we were talking about just a bit ago, there's really been a change in how we should perceive our job. For many people coming out of college in their 20s, they saw it as a profession and knew that there were going to be steps they had to take to keep up their license, um, to keep do CEUs they were required to do in those kinds of positions, where folks who didn't go to a college or trade school had a position, were in a good job, maybe in manufacturing or or, or uh, logistics, wherever, but they didn't see that as a career. They saw it as a job. And you just applied for a job and you got that job and kind of end a story. You did it for eight hours a day and you went home where now really employers are have higher expectations regardless of what level that job is. And and it's the same kind of preparation and continued learning at Mm -hmm. all levels. That's right. That's right, Carol. Yeah. So, okay. All right. We touched upon this earlier. It. It looks as though we can't build Ohio's economy without a trained and educated workforce. In your opinion, what's happened and continues to happen in our educational systems that prevent Ohioans from workforce training? We talked about the students here just a moment ago. Let's let's get into the systems that exist. Yes, you're absolutely right that Ohio needs a, a trained and educated workforce. And I think the Ohio Department of Higher Education has really recognized that. Um, they had a grant from the Lumina Foundation um, to really focus in on educational attainment for adults ages 25 to 64. Um, the Lumina Foundation, just based on their own research, um, proposed that in order for the U.S. to be competitive, that about 60 to 65 percent of adults um, ages 25 to, to 64 needed to have a credential recognized in the workplace, which it could be a certificate, it could be an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. Ohio is somewhere in the mid-40s right now, maybe 46, 47 percent. Um, and Ohio Department of Higher Ed, or ODHE, formed an adult learner working group, which which I was a part of. And there were representatives from um, higher ed institutions 
from across the state at all levels, um, Ohio's technical centers, uh, community colleges, and baccalaureate institutions were were um, a part of this, and to really develop strategies from um, from a lot of different perspectives, from re- reducing inequality just from through the equity lens, um, because at a, a lot of institutions, particularly baccalaureate institutions, um, racial and e- ethnic minorities are underrepresented. Underrepresented, um, so I think Ohio has recognized it, and there's another um, piece to that that because of the decline in fertility rates, projections for college enrollment by high school graduates by say 2028 or 2030 is really projected to decline, and that's well recognized, and it's recognized that in order for um, colleges th- throughout Ohio. Um, to maintain enrollment levels, they have to go after the adult student. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's not just from an enrollment standpoint, but also to meet employer needs in Ohio. Right. 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 Yeah, it's uh, in our former lives, uh, me working with Carol at a nonprofit, we had a guest speaker, Elizabeth Isel, founder of um, – the uh, Global Institute for Experienced Entre- Entrepreneurship, and and again, she has this global view of it, and and it was really eye opening with what she spoke about, and I I think this tapers off what you talked about that the United States has no clue on workforce development compared to other countries mm-hmm. in regards right. to implementing right. fifty and over, forty and over, and recognizing that that they're very talented in what they do. Yeah. We're so far behind. Yeah, and I think Europe may be ahead of us just because their pop they have a their population is aging even faster yeah. than the US, mm-hmm. Germany, Italy. Um they are actually projecting population declines. Um I think the the Scandinavian countries are especially ahead of the US in terms of offering lifelong learning opportunities. Mm-hmm. They have what they call folk high schools. They have what they call learning circles or learning associations that are available at little or no cost to adults of all ages. And it's not just the the learning aspect. It's the social aspect mm-hmm. and the social trust, um, civic engagement. All of those things are built as well. And it's a cultural thing. I totally get that. It's generation after generation after generation of this. You hit the peak of 65 and you're ready to retire and you hit the rocker on the front porch and those days are gone. Well, a lot of that goes back to the shift from um, defined benefit to defined contribution retirement plans mm-hmm. when right. when most corporations right. in the U.S. Um, shifted the risk to retirement to their employees. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people – have not done as well as they should have in terms of their financial planning for retirement. So they've ended up staying in the labor force at older ages. Do you, do you think also, though, too, that because the U.S. population was considered a young population until the baby boomers started hitting middle age? I mean, we 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 had that notion of we were going to be perpetually young at young now we're young at heart, but you know it, mm-hmm. it's this, the population's aging, and and it's not going to change. Yeah, and with declining birth rates, right? Um, it's, and, right. It's, I mean, and we depended on on higher immigration, and now who knows where that's going? So, right. oh, and but we knew this wave was coming. I remember 
hearing those reports like, well, there's this big boomer generation that's going to hit us at this certain point in time. And these are the factors that are coming to play and, and what we have to really watch out for. And it's like, oh, that's so far away. That's so far away. And all of a sudden, boom, right? <laughs> it's here. And it's, it's like we weren't prepared. We knew this was coming. Or just wanted to ignore the, the, the and hope that something else would happen. Almost, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. keep kicking the can down the road. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and as I kind of uh, in other podcasts and in earlier in this one hinted, um, one of my previous career lives was at one of the major universities in continuing education. And uh, 20 years of, of really helping adults and, and our definition of adult students um, were usually 23 and up. So, I mean, adults, but it was basically out of high school five years. Um, and really seeing the issues and trying to create systems and services based on their needs, being, you know, offices opened in the evening and on Saturday mornings and helping people hand walk through registration, particularly when they went to online registration because it was so foreign to our students. And um, as I mentioned um, before we started podcasting this morning, um, it at, at my university, uh, the continuing ed students, the adult students on campus were the second largest group of students on campus. But um, the university did not recognize that need. Uh, and I think um, at, that every uh, university in Ohio closed their continuing ed unit. They may have created something else in its wake, but but basically everything that said adult students continuing education was gone. And um, that's that's critical. I mean, talk about not making adults welcome on campus. You get rid of their unit and 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 not give them something else. Um, so we've talked about a little bit about the systems, Phyllis. What what can we do to help our educational system recognize the importance of adult students? I think that that some of that is changing, and I think of some of the programs at Miami University. There's initiative to create sort of micro-credentials um, right. for students or they can be alums, they can be people in the community um, to really re-engage or keep engaged adults um, for learning opportunities throughout their life. Um, I'm, I'm an alum of Ohio State and I get emails from their alumni association about um, various opportunities to listen to a webinar or you know, things like mm -hmm. that. But I think that going back to the issue of enrollment, perhaps um, enrollment can be thought of in a different way, not, not enrolling in a program of study, but enrolling in maybe a micro-credential. Right, exactly. We said years ago that an adult student goes back to a campus because they have a need. That need can be met with a certain number of courses, one or more, and they're, getting a degree is not their priority. But the universities and, and many colleges are still based on that notion of degree granting, degree track. Well, one of the things that we found in the, the community college study, um, there, there were data, or data available on student goals and we looked by age at student goals. Were they there to get an associate's degree? What was their reason for going? And with increasing age, 
more of the students were there for some short-term training Mm -hmm. to upgrade their skills or for personal enrichment and not really seeking a degree. Right. Um, They were there to maybe to build a skill that would help them stay employed. And and I think one of the differences is that when people did that before, they already had a degree. But I'm guessing that today they may not have a degree. It's still very much skills-based. It's skills-based, but... We were surprised, um, and granted, the focus group volunteers are not a a, um, a sample, right? Um, but we were surprised at the number of participants in the focus groups that already had degrees, or that um, maybe they had bachelors. We even had one with a PhD. But I recall one participant; she had she got a degree in engineering at Ohio State. Say. 30 years ago, mm-hmm. and she stayed home with her children, and her skills became obsolete. Mm-hmm. And she was fearful to go to a baccalaureate institu- institution, so she enrolled at a community college and felt more comfortable in the classroom. Um, and she ended up, I believe, transferring and eventually got a master's in something. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's one way for um, and you, Carol, you and I may have talked about this. The program 60 at Ohio right, State, right, and Colleges and universities throughout the state have an opportunity for adults age 60 and older to audit a class on a space-available basis Mm -hmm. with the permission of the instructor and to kind of get their feet wet if they haven't been in school for a while to see, understand how it's different and kind of figure out what are their real interests. What do, if they went back to school, what would they like to study before making a financial investment? Well, And I think I'm sort of – not atypical, but uh, an example of going back. So my PhD is in sociology and business, which was, you know, unheard of then and now. Um, but in working at the university, um, working on nonprofit boards and then at a nonprofit, over time I realized I needed to understand budgeting and financial reports and all of that. So I went back to a community college and took the accounting sequence of courses so that I would understand what it was I was looking at, you know, not just what a debit and a credit is, but, you know, what's the difference between cash flow and, and a budget, what, you know, where, where we were going. And um, again, it was to get the information I needed not to get a degree. Right. Yeah. Can you provide some more information on, on examples that are successful programs in Ohio or, or maybe programs you've researched and feel would be a good fit? our state? Well, adults ages 25 and older are more likely to enroll at a community college than a baccalaureate institution. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, and the Ohio Technical Centers, which award, um, they award certificates and diplomas. And by diploma, I mean, there, it might be an RN diploma, registered nurse diploma. Mm-hmm. And they can sit for the same state board that a um, someone that gets an associate's degree at a community college sits for. Um, and they work very closely with employers in the community. They're small. They're, they may only have a few hundred students. And that the Ohio Technical Centers are an offshoot of um, joint vocational high schools that were developed in Ohio, I think, in the 60s, roughly 60s. And... Ohio's structure is rather unique in their adult programs. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, but it's my understanding that somewhere along the way, 
uh, somebody realized we have these buildings and all these resources that are not being used in the evenings and on weekends. Right. Um, so they started these adult programs in essentially the same spaces in most cases where the high school students go during the day. Mm-hmm. And it's really a good use of facilities and resources. And they have all sorts of programs. They have welding. They have um, advanced manufacturing, robotics. Um, they have a lot of similar programs to community colleges, but they're highly structured. Um, they A program might last for a year, and the classes might meet four nights a week. Right. So they're very structured. Mm-hmm. And some students, that doesn't work for. Some students that want more flexible schedules, they go to community colleges. But I think one issue that you brought up, Carol, um, that came up a lot when we were doing our focus groups is that most adult students, they work full or part-time. They're looking for classes in the evenings. Um, The campus offices for tutoring, for advising, for financial aid, they're not open in the evenings. Right. And that was a complaint we heard from a lot. I think a lot of the colleges um, recognize that and are trying to be more flexible. Everything's online now. So, right. well, not everything. Right. A lot of things are but more available. It that helps. helps. It helps a lot. Yeah. One, one of the things um, when I went back to the local community college for my accounting courses that I was really surprised at was that I had to go and go to admissions in one building registration in another building, the bookstore in another building. So even on the community colleges, um, the services were siloed. Mm-hmm. And that the, the idea of putting things all together just yeah. didn't, didn't exist. Um, another uh, story, I was really active with a professional association of, of continuing educators in Ohio. <laughs> and, and our goal was to um, – emphasize continuing education, adult education in the state from all perspectives. So it was private schools, the university, the public universities, all the the, uh, two-year campuses, proprietary schools. And and we would work with local legislators and the governor's Mm -hmm. office to talk about the needs of adult students and um, not the current change to semesters, which just happened in the last 15 years or so at all the schools, but there was a wave of going to semesters back in the 90s, and a lot of the sm- the smaller private schools went from quarters to semesters. Um, one of the schools, the continuing ed unit, um, their enrollment dropped by half. Their students could not go from a quarter to a semester. They needed um, to uh, – they, they couldn't deal with that length of time on a course because of family obligations and all. So that continuing ed unit was able to change their, the schedules of the courses they supported to mini masters. So they actually went from 10 weeks to eight weeks instead of going up to 15 or 16 hmm. weeks. So that big, long explanation. So my question, Phyllis, is what can we do to get the state to actually have a plan for adult education, to recognize adults in the 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 scope of all of the programs that they are trying to create in you know K through twelve and up up through adulthood, yeah. I think the the community colleges are starting to offer uh, some shorter term programs like breaking a semester into two pieces right. for the reasons you were talking about, Carol. Um, it just fits in better with adult students. 
I think that the the work of this adult learner working group I was talking about, um, I think that will help. But administrators at each college, community college, they have to buy in to the need. And if there's not that buy-in, it's not going to happen. And if there's not the funding for it, it's not going to happen either. All right. Well, and you know, and and coming off that just for a bit and diving in, are we looking at a situation right now with COVID, the pandemic and and university enrollment down? A lot of universities are on teetering, even closing, Mm -hmm. retrenchment. Particularly the smaller schools. So we're dealing with a situation here that we may not see any resolution to helping this for a little while, correct? I think that's possible. possible. I mean, it's all conjecture, of course. It is possible. uh, It would be a shame for the state and the educational institutions to not take advantage of a new normal. Right, right. And so we have seen what we can do in – uh, not getting to a store, not getting to be able to mm-hmm. buy groceries, um, it, what having kids at, at working – we're working from home and our kids are learning from home. This is an opportunity for yeah. many of the schools to say what can we do to make things easier for all students, not just the traditionally aged students but adult students right. too. Right, right. Exactly, yeah. And, and particularly that we can we can get past the, the technology issues. It, it's, an, again, an educational process that we mm-hmm. need to do, but we can get people up to speed on technology. We can. Um, there are still parts of Ohio, the rural areas, rural Appalachia, right. Appalachia that lack broadband. Right, right. Um, and, that, and, and there's that's no, an issue. But, you know, they put through, there was an organization in Ohio that was supposed to do broadband all over, and I'm not sure where that went, but. I I did an interview with um Someone at an Ohio Technical Center yesterday that is at a school in rural Appalachia, and they still have a lot of issues with their students. And it was especially bad during the pandemic because the the students um, would go to the library, right. libraries to get access, public libraries, and they were closed. Right. Um, but right. I I do wonder how education will change. What lessons were learned during the pandemic that will we'll see education change mm-hmm. on a more permanent basis. And I think of business travel. Will business travel be less because people have figured out, well, they can do a lot through Zoom meetings. Right, yeah. right. And from what I've heard so far, the predictions are business travel will be down. Mm-hmm. That's what they're predicting. And that's where the bulk of money comes from for travel. The, you know, the, 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 the vacations and personal just don't make up the the bulk of what airlines make. Right. So they're realizing I mean, we don't have to budget this in as much as we do. You don't have to go to as many conferences. The pick the key ones you have to be. And you better be presenting as well. That's <laughs> right. Know, that's right. Well, yeah. well, we don't get reimbursed to go to a conference unless we present. Right. I mean, I can't. Part of the, the grants I'm involved in um, with IES, dissemination, is a big component, mm-hmm. and we have to submit a dissemination plan with our grant application to really hit four, four audiences, the practitioners, the academic audience, the general public, and policymakers. So we have to have strategies to like present at a practitioner conference, um, and those were all virtual last year. There, there will be some in-person conferences, um, but I suspect Miami is not alone that um, most universities, I believe, have prohibited travel right. mm-hmm. by their right. mm-hmm. by their. But there hasn't 
they haven't really been any places to go. So <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Sure. Well, we've discussed you know the barriers, the critical issues for minority candidates and older adults, but let's expand that conversation to include the issues of women, uh, veterans, immigrants. Uh, there are a whole lot of categories here that you know we haven't really touched upon. Are, are there other issues that need to be addressed for these groups? Are the solutions the same or more complex? I think they're more complex. Okay. And let's take women as an example. Um, there have been more women that have dropped out of the labor force during the pandemic than men, and it's because of their traditional child care responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, schools were closed, so they were – um, helping either homeschooling or helping their their children adapt to virtual learning, um, and it's it's kind of worrisome because because leaving the workforce for a period of time it's harder to get back in, and it can pa- impact their um, their retirement security, mm-hmm. financial security, mm-hmm. and retirement. And in talking with with um, Community college leaders in Ohio, they saw a drop in enrollment, especially from the female students, because for the same reasons, because of childcare issues and really need those that were still working to focus more heavily on work. Um, so it's going to put women behind in education, um, lower skilled especially um, those with, say, only a high school diploma or less, and especially those that of racial and ethnic minorities have been especially hard hit uh, during the pandemic and women more than men. So I think it will take special efforts to reengage those groups um, during the pandemic. And some of the jobs that I think of in retail, in hospitality – um, they may not come back in the same way. People are shopping online more. Um, it seems like every month or so you hear of a shopping center that's closing. It's right. going to close their right. doors and mm-hmm. be torn down. The first shopping center I ever shopped at when I was a kid was – I grew up – lived in rural Ohio at, when I was young – was Northland. It was an open mall, mm-hmm. and it's not there anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and there's and I remember there was a shopping center in downtown Columbus. Oh yes, that was torn down. Right. So right. Yeah. It's it's hard to know how yeah, how well, jobs are going to change, right. and then we have automation on top of all that that is going to eliminate jobs mm-hmm. right. or change jobs. I should say, not necessarily eliminate, but make them more complex with different skill requirements. Right. Phyllis, one of the um, little uh, side conversations we've had that that uh, sounds like it could be a lot of fun is uh, the concept of age friendly university, and um, you you had mentioned that to me and that you are um, helping to bring that to Miami. So tell us a little bit about um, what that is and why it's going to help all of our um, listeners in their job seeking. Well. Miami University and Akron University are the only two age-friendly universities in Ohio. Um, it The concept started, I'm not sure how long ago, but it was originated um, by, I believe, Dublin City College in Ireland. And that's who our application went through to become an age-friendly university. In Indiana, Purdue is an age-friendly university. And you can, um, if you, if you look, do an internet search for age-friendly universities, you'll find some information but it's it's not just about say a program sixty that allows older students to enroll um, at no cost. It's really um, we think of it as being age inclusive. 
to being um, friendly to ad- individuals of all ages in all aspects mm-hmm. of, of the university. And that's that's how we approached it um, when when Scripps worked on this application. It was it was quite well received throughout the university and um, but we like to think of ourselves as an age inclusive to um, from from opportunities. We have an institute for learning and retirement mm-hmm. ILR. Um, that's that's one thing that we offer for adult students. And then another aspect is what I was talking about before um, the micro credentials that right. that Miami University would like to grow. Um, but I think. I'm hoping that other universities in Ohio um, will embrace this concept of age-friendly universities, and I think it's it's um, it's kind of a mentality of recognizing the value of students of all ages, and it to me it goes hand in hand with this attainment objective to try and engage, re-engage adults ages 25 to 64 if they don't have a credential to enroll in a college or university to get a recognized um, credential and to if, – if it's more embraced, if the concept of an age-friendly university is more embraced by more institutions of higher ed throughout the state, I think it will, it will help the entire university, mm-hmm. the faculty, the students um, to become more – accepting of students of all ages. Um, one of the things that I'm hoping will happen that is kind of along the same lines is recognizing that there is ageism in the classroom, right. not just by students that of traditional age that might say, you know, what are you doing here? You're an old person. But faculty as well and right. just the, the language of ageism so we're hoping to develop some um, some webinars that will educate um, faculty about working in an age, you know, thinking in terms of ageism being part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion discussion. Right. Um, we've had other um, guests, and we've talked about ageism, and in, in particularly in the workplace, and. And actually, ageism is the only ism that seems to be allowed. Uh, we talk about other isms and, and you know, everybody throws their hands up and go, oh, you can't do that. But ageism, folks act like, well, that's not a big deal. But it truly is because that one thing that we do is we do get older and we do keep paying taxes. So yeah, <laughs> and those right. young students are going to be old someday. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Well, you know, before we end, first of all, I want to say thank you for a fellow alum being on the podcast. It will not be the last time. We're going to dig more. We'll bring more of yours as well, too. But yes, we, we need more Miami the, alum. The Otterbein Theater folks visited <laughs> us. So. We need more alum on the podcast. But uh, would you like to share some last words of wisdom, some tips before we end the podcast? I think adults of all ages, middle-aged, older adults, should not underestimate themselves in their – abilities to go back to school and be successful. Uh, I think it's helpful to find a mentor, Mm -hmm. somebody that's in the, if you're thinking that you might be interested in some health profession, find a mentor that can help you um, understand what's involved. Do an informational interview for for a new occupation so you know what's really involved and maybe do some job shadowing. Um, 
Now, I have been a lifelong learner myself, as you can tell from the my various <laughs> degrees. There was somewhat of a gap between the degrees, but I also um, did a lot of what I think of as continuing education in terms of professional credentials, right. um, certifications, industry-recognized certifications that can be valuable in keeping um, keeping a job and recognizing that um, that skills and job requirements change over time. The last job I had at Prudential was um, in valuations appraisal, um, and I'm my background is real estate appraisal. But I went through the process of becoming a chartered financial analyst, which is asset involves asset valuation, all types of assets. Um, so just doing things like that to to consider how can I keep my skills up to date? How can I make myself attractive to my to my employer so they'll keep me uh, and so I can advance? Um, so those are just some of the suggestions I have for the people listening to this today. Don't estri- underestimate yourself. Um, think have have lofty goals for what you might want to do and just if you're if you don't want to enroll in a baccalaureate program just step your toe in and take a course to see right. well is it interesting. Right. And and really take take that chance. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And 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 as you said, I, I appreciate you saying don't underestimate your own abilities. People have been learning in their jobs in their volunteer life, in their family life, in their church life, um, they've learned a lot of skills. So use that as your base and just keep right. growing with those. So. Yes. Right. P- people don't always know that they're learning. Exactly. I mean, there's a concept of formal learning, non-formal learning, and informal learning. And right. informal learning is just um, reading a magazine about current events or reading an article about um, some new invention it can be anything. Right, right. And and there is a lot of value. Employers value the fact that you are willing to look, to learn, to understand, and, and to see a bigger picture. So wonderful. Thank you, Phyllis, so much for joining yes. us today. We appreciate it. And audience, don't forget, um, check out the website, show notes, and we'll have lots of information for you posted there. And thanks to everybody at Scripps for allowing us to talk about their wonderful programs and have Phyllis with us today. Thank you. We want to thank you for following the Looking Forward Our Way podcast. Do you know we also have a newsletter? Our goal with the newsletter is to never waste your time or fill your inbox with email landfill. Each newsletter is quick and easy to read and keeps you updated on what we are working on as well as what is coming up on the next podcast. You'll see some newsletter items come and go, but we'll always be respectful to your time and inbox clutter. And we always encourage recycling, so send the newsletter along to a friend or a family member. Sign up by clicking on the link in the show notes or go to our website, lookingforwardourway.com. Thanks again for following and listening to Looking Forward Our Way.